I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode is brought to you by Boombox Gifts, memory boxes filled with personal messages and photos from friends and family for your next special occasion. Check it out at boomboxgifts.com. I'm here today with Brian Solis. Brian is one of the world's leading digital anthropologists and futurists. We'll find out what that means. He is a frequent keynote speaker and is an award-winning author of seven best-selling books. His latest book is Life Scale, How to Live a More Creative, Productive, and Happy Life. Good morning. Hello. It's nice to meet you. You too. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I love the name of it. So I'm super excited. Oh, Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> so I want to start by just asking, what is a digital anthropologist and futurist? What, is, what does that mean? And how did you become that? <laughs> I went to college for it, of course. <laughs> no, not at all. The digital anthropology part of it was something that, at the time, was something that I, I pretty much created out of necessity. I was a digital analyst, but also a technology advisor. So what that means is I was studying in the 90s how all of this emergent technology, Web 1.0, digital cameras, online photo sharing, you know, some very, very big dramatic shifts in technology, how, how that was affecting markets. And, you know, so to give you a quick example, when I was advising the first online photo sharing network, the consumer sentiment at the time was, there's no way I'm putting all my personal pictures on the internet. And then now we, that's all we do. Right. And so somewhere along that path, people changed, norms changed, behaviors changed. And so I realized that in order to get technology adopted and understood that I was going to have to understand people. And so that's where digital anthropology came into play, that I started applying anthropology, sociology, ethnography work into understanding how technology was and could reshape societies and behaviors and norms and values, et cetera. And understanding that actually really started to explain where markets were going. And so a futurist doesn't predict the future. A futurist plays out scenarios based on certain certain contexts so that you can you can make more hopefully wiser decisions about the about the future and investments. Well that's that's super cool. I wish I had known that was a career option for me when I was starting out. <laughs> I'm gonna lay it on the table for my kids though. Like this is one thing you could do. Sounds really awesome. <laughs> So you're a digital anthropologist and futurist, one of the best, apparently. And then you've written seven best-selling books, basically, right? Seven best-selling books. And now you've written Life Scale. So where did the idea for this book come from? Oh, boy. So I'll just I'll just kind of be super honest. Might as well. Yeah, please. I tried writing another book. And the last seven books have been really about what what we kind of just talked about, you know, technology's impact on markets and businesses and how businesses need to adapt and change and what, what the future of business organizations and markets look like. And, you know, not, not necessarily aimed anywhere towards the mainstream. They were really written for executives. And I thought that what would have been my eighth book was sort of a time to maybe start to bridge a little bit between writing for executives, but then also writing for the individual within the organization. Because the challenge that businesses face is that people aren't being empowered or recognized to, that they, they offer new ideas and that they can do things and that they do things differently because they're still operating in these very rigid operational models. So I wanted to empower people to rise up and help 
businesses change a lot faster because it, you know, it's not happening fast enough. And I thought, okay, this is going to be my big breakout book. <laughs> and I better, I better write a proposal so that I can get editors to understand where I'm trying to go since it's so different than what I've done in the past and it's going to help me grow my audience. And so essentially what I was setting the stage for was the need to dig deep and create something that was going to be new and powerful and hopefully exciting and, and also market building for myself. So I couldn't even get past the proposal stage. I had hired an editor to help me just kind of polish the, the proposal. A, a proposal's really deep, it's deeper than I thought it was going to need to be. And I was getting all of these edits back that, you know, can you explain this? This isn't coming across as I think you're thinking about it. And, you know, next thing I know is months, months later. And I lost my drive and my passion for it. I was so frustrated and I just gave up and I never give up. <laughs> and I, I just gave up and I kind of just chalked, chalked it up to the fact that, well, I've got all these research reports I need to write anyway, so I don't want to take too much more of my time away from my day job. And then it just sat on my shoulders for months. You know, you failed, you didn't get that out, what's going on? And Next thing I know, I just started soul searching and really thinking about the fact that a lot of my reports were going through similar types of edits. And at the end of the day, I still had to write a, a book. It still, <laughs> it still needed to get something done. And that's when I started to really understand. And this is why I was just going to say, I'll be honest, is that I didn't just fail in that. I also just really started to see a pattern of not failures, but not necessarily being truly my best self in every aspect of my life. So as a husband, as a father, as a friend, is that all of these things were sort of similar in that they shared sort of a shallower version of myself kind of cultivating or, or just managing every, every single front that I work on. And that's when I started to study what was really going on in my life that that suddenly was okay that when when at what point in my life was it okay to just be this this sliver of myself and that's when i started to uncover the impacts of technology on everyday life ironically the stuff that i studied all of these years i was now studying how it was affecting my life and long story short was you know spoiler alert you know technology's impact on us our kids is devastating and we don't necessarily know because it's not actively marketed, uh, just like cigarettes weren't uh, marketed as they were bad for you at the beginning. And the real big spoiler was that they were designed to be distracting and they were designed to be addictive. And that's the revenue model. And the only answer for me, because I still had to write that book, was I wasn't going to give up technology because it's a big part of my life. I was just going to have to figure out how to live life now in a time where distractions are normal and technology is normal and it's not like any of it's going away it's going to get more complicated and more and easier at the same time more devices more apps more services more technologies so i figured i needed a life manual and that's what this book became but i didn't know it was going to be my eighth book until i realized that it changed my life and then i made it into a book wow and i love how at the beginning of your book you talk about how you'd gotten so distracted in your own life that you noticed you were too distracted Distracted to write the article you were working on, which was called How to Focus While Being Distracted. <laughs> which, that so was like true. my favorite part of your book. That's hilarious. But. 
<laughs> it's true. And I had to actually build, I had to build the discipline to even be able to focus to write an article like that, or even to write a book. And so the book was constructed to be the journey that I had to go on to fix my own life and then, you know, fix it so that it would help others. And so it's not the book that I, I set out to write at all, but it is the book that I needed. And on the cover of your book, you illustrate a cycle. And speaking of illustrations, I feel like the design of this book is one of the coolest I've ever seen. I love how you have little sticky notes and little pieces of cardboard. Looks like they're like taped inside the book and passages are highlighted. It's like the most user-friendly book ever. Like it captures my, I mean, it's certainly for the people who, you know, their attention tends to wander. This book is so attention-grabbing and it's like the perfect way to design that. So anyway, I just thought that was the coolest. But anyway, on the cover of it, you show a cycle, which you break down in detail in the book. But what is the short version of how to break free from distractions, focus, spark creativity, and unlock new possibilities? What's like the couple sentence version of of how people can do that? Oh, boy. Well, it's all very easy, actually. And I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I guess the real answer is that Each part of the book is broken out into stages of a journey. That's how I got the name LifeScale. And when you open the book, you see see a little person running through what looks like a a board game, like Chutes and Ladders or uh, Candyland. And that was the inspiration behind what ended up becoming a very creative form of table of contents, of of way of expression, so that you could see each stage of the journey that you were going to go on. And the reason I did that is because I didn't want to say, hey, by the way, changing your life is really complicated and it's going to be overwhelming. I wanted to make it so that you you felt actually joy and excitement going through each stage. In the early stages, you have to learn how to be able to recognize or just at least be aware of what's happened to you or your loved ones or your kids and also what's happening still. And I tried to write that not in a shock value way, but more of a did you know? Uh, and as a means of just kind of getting everybody to say, wow, I had no idea. And this makes sense. And then the next stage, you go on to be able to what I, I call uh, productivity hacks, just teaching yourself how to focus for one minute, eventually 25 minutes, eventually 60 minutes, because we can't go on this journey. We can't learn. We can't change if we can't take the time to actually focus. And that's one of the stories I'll quickly share is that the Pomodoro technique was something that was really profound for me that it teaches you that like the kitchen timer teaches you to focus in 25 minute bursts and then you take a five minute break. And the first time I tried it, I was keeping a a scorecard and I couldn't even make it, I think, three minutes before I physically reached for my phone without a notification. It was just embedded in, in, in my wiring that hey, I should probably reach for my phone now. And so it wasn't even because of a distraction. It was just because it was baked into my rituals or my behaviors so deeply that that's just, I didn't even notice that's what I was doing. But every time you do something like that, let's just say you're trying to focus on a particular task. Every time you allow yourself to be distracted, it takes about 23 minutes to get back into the zone. And if you think about it, the the average person gets about 200 notifications a day. That's, that's a lot that you're pulling away from whatever that task at hand is. And without building the skills to kind of be able to put those at bay and to focus, our work is actually degrading. And that's what happened in my proposal that I wasn't, I, even though I was, I felt I was great <laughs> and 
And that social media and every device that I use reminds me that I'm the center of the universe because every time I say something or post something, people react. My work wasn't reflecting the idea of greatness that, that I had of, of me and what I do. And so then as you get further and further into the book, essentially you're building on those skills that you got in the previous pages and it runs you through exercises that what I realized and that, you know, without giving it all away, you know, our, our parents had this definition of success and happiness that was passed down to them from their parents and passed down to them from their parents and so on. And, you know, you bring in whatever your belief systems are and you kind of forge this, this level of tradition that, it, that has been shared pretty much for, for centuries. And I think what happened with technology over the last 20 years and specifically since since the iPhone in particular, that's been, I think, in my work, one of the single greatest disruptions in history is that it changed the entire dynamic for information and connections. It empowered individuals for the first time to be the source of information. It empowered people to connect instantly with anyone around the world. And suddenly it was not only intoxicating and seductive, but it was empowering in that you had the same type of reach and ability and also emotions and thoughts that a celebrity might actually be going through. No one teaches you how to be a celebrity. And when you are one, suddenly your entire life is upside down. And this is why we see so many celebrities struggle with life because it's you didn't have the foundation for it and you have to sort of learn on the job and some people fail dramatically and others take time to sort of cope and learn how to work with it and others hire the best people around them to help them navigate it all but not us our parents weren't there to help us because they didn't know this or our teachers or our mentors or whoever in our life because they were going through it in their own separate way as well and like me it was normal. You know, how do you sell a book to people about managing and conquering their distractions if no one knows that they're distracted? And last but not least, the later stages of the book are all actually very human. It's about resetting the definition of happiness. It's actually about re resetting the definition of success for a modern era now that everybody has these tools and now that everybody's believing these things and changing their beliefs and believing that they're popular or engaged, uh, but also that we're all in one way, shape, or form distracted and or addicted, that we needed a new operating manual for life. And that's what that's what I set out to create. And that's the journey that we all sort of go on, a much more, much more human journey. So how do you define success for yourself? You know, I went through, yeah, that was a hard, it was a hard question to answer because I found myself applying my parents' definition of success, you know, so university, great job, marriage, house, assets, a lot of assets, the way that you know, we were sold stuff is sort of becoming milestones for, for who we are and how we're defined and how we're perceived. That was sort of my, my common definition of success. And then I realized that actually success and happiness and even creativity is why one of the reasons why creativity is a pillar of this book. We're actually more in, in, intertwined that that success and happiness were 
were linked and that happiness wasn't tied to when I have this or when I do this or when this happens, then I'll be happy, which is what a lot of, I call it the happiness trap that a lot of us kind of get caught up in. It was that happiness was actually inside of me now and that the act of creating rather than consuming actually was also an exercise of sort of bringing out more and more happiness that I wasn't allowing myself to feel that being present, even as simple as just putting everything aside and taking my kids out (laughs) for a walk was happiness and things that I just wasn't getting to that are on my list. And then suddenly you lose time. So success actually were things that I was allowing myself to feel every single day, but also not getting distracted away from the goals that I was setting and the vision that I was putting together, that I was assembling in a physical manifestation of what I was visualizing that I wanted to do, that that wasn't success, but those were goals and that I was creating milestones that allowed me to feel success and also allowed me to feel happiness on the way to those goals. So it was something that I could just enjoy now. One interesting and one of the many interesting things in your book was when you cited neurologist Dr. Daniel Levitin's study, which said that every time you switch tasks, your brain engages in a neurochemical switch that uses up nutrients in the brain to accomplish it. So if you're doing four or five things at once, you're not actually doing four or five things at once. You're just switching, 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 and exhausting your brain. And so there are some dangers to that, which I feel is something that leads to distraction, right? Because we're all multitasking all the time. And I read that and thought, well, is that why I can't even like retrieve the words I need half the time? Like <laughs> all this stuff, my brain is like, you know, doing one of those swirlies that like the computer does. It's like frozen. Are these dangers of multitasking, are these reversible? Like if I just tone it down a little bit for a while, will the will the words come when I want them? Or is it long-term effects of this technology? What do you think? Oh, I, I so I, I have the answer, but I'll ask you a question first. You ever sat around a table with friends and tried to recall the name of the movie or who the actress or actor was in the movie or or some some moment in time that everybody was talking about and just and no one had the answer, but it was on the tip of everybody's tongue. And so somebody said, well, let's just Google it. Mm-hmm. We all do that. It's just sort of a sign of what happens is, is the more you do that, or the more you look something up, you're actually preventing your short and long-term memory from sort of firing as a fit muscle, right? So you you sort of become, you could you become dependent on the instant access information. The same is true with with multitasking. You're essentially rewiring your brain to function differently, and it's it's the reason why I couldn't, for example, go deep and with great clarity on my proposal when I failed because my brain was so used to operating at this much more superficial level, multitasking, probably checking social media, responding to emails, answering calls and texts, all while trying to write this proposal. So I was operating in a very normal way, but not understanding the impacts of what your brain is actually producing. So when you multitask, you're essentially just kind of skating or surfing along. You're not actually doing the best job that you can do. So, for example, if you were single tasking, but life kind of rewards us for thinking that we are multitasking and that we're getting all of these things done. But if you were to really sort of assess and compare your work to several years ago, you'll, you'll see, wow, 
it's not, it's not, it's not as great as, as, as I thought it was. So yes, it's exactly what happens. And so at the end of the day, your brain is exhausted, but so is your body because when you're also multitasking, it's not just your brain that's producing all of these different nutrients. It's actually your body producing everything from, you know, endorphins, oxytocin, six different chemicals, for example, at any time when you're using social media. And it's not unlike what happens to your body when you're using any type of stimulant that your body gets sort of, I don't want to use the word addicted because that does happen, but it's such a strong word. But let's just say it gets used to that as being the normal. And so that therefore it craves it. And then you build your patterns around it. And so over time it has huge health, health and wellness implications that we're just now starting to study that aren't just affecting your memory, but also affecting your happiness, but also Every health implication that you could imagine from being exhausted to being addicted are all now starting to be linked to our uses of, of technology. The good news is, is that... And I'm like, great, this is this yeah. is a great conversation. I feel <laughs> awesome. I'm like doomed now, but... <laughs> The great news is that every time you go to sleep, your your body, for the most part, if you get a good night's sleep, actually recreates or reproduces those nutrients. And so you have a choice when you wake up the next morning how you want to use them. And I, I made a decision that I wasn't going to give up technology. I was just going to be more mindful about how I was going to use it. And I was going to focus on rebuilding me and rebuilding a me for my family and also professionally because I, I still have ideas and things I want to conquer. And so all I had to do was find a way that was pleasant and encouraging and motivating to then rewire my brain and my body intentionally. And that's what, that's what LifeScale does. And as you described in the book, that it was, it's visually appealing. I tried to make it fun and, and inspiring that, yeah, of course I want to take control. And it's not fair that, that all of these things happened in my life without actually me saying, yeah, this is okay, that we just sort of went along with it. And all because companies decided that they were going to design them to be what they became. So if busy moms were to take one action item away from this talk with you that they could implement into their busy lives, aside from reading your book, which is the obvious one thing that they should do, <laughs> what's the most important thing? Is it time away from the phone? Is it focus on one thing? What's like the most important? I think the most important is to put the phone down and take the iPad away from the kids for a minute and just allow yourself to, even if it's just a simple 30 minutes of, of research, just look at the work of Tristan Harris. He has a site that it's almost like a magician's secrets revealed, and he ex explains what we're doing every time we're looking at the phone. There, he explains from his perspective what they did and why, and so that we can at least maybe shock ourselves to say, ah, that's what happens every single time I look at my phone, and that's what happens every single time I put an iPad in my kids' hands. And you, if as a human being, <laughs> you can't help but feel compelled to want to learn more and learn how to be better as an individual and as a parent. That's, that's where I started. Hmm. And do you have any advice to aspiring authors, maybe someone similarly struggling with a proposal the way you were or someone struggling to convey something they think is really important? Yeah, before you go on the life scale journey, you might want to take the take a look at the work of a gentleman by the name of Cal Newport, and he wrote a book called Deep Work. Now, the book itself is very deep, but there are some really, really, really interesting things that help you understand what the the foundation of deep work. Writing a book is deep 
work. A lot of people write the book because they see it as a form of self-expression. So anything I create or anything I write is great. You have to actually understand it's not about what you create, it's what people consume. And you're writing for someone in a way that is going to really touch them. Just like the design of the book was meant to, I know you're distracted, so I'm going to create a piece of paper that doesn't just speak to you, but it helps you turn the pages. And so that type of design with intention was audience driven. And the only way to get there was to allow myself the depth and the time to even have that idea. And we don't, we don't give ourselves that, that space. And Deep Work by Cal Newport was one of the things that helped me get that space. I ended up renting a place in Lake Tahoe and shutting everything out and turning everything off. And it was hard and it was painful. It was almost like going through withdrawals because it is going through withdrawals, but I got there. And that's the best advice I could give you. The only way to do it is to allow yourself to do it at the depth that you could express yourself uniquely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all this fantastic advice. I am going to try not to be on my phone so much today, but I know I will fail, but at least I'll be aware <laughs> of what I'm doing. And thank you so much for, for sharing your, your hard-earned wisdom with all the listeners. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Bye. This episode has been brought to you by Boombox Gifts, memory boxes filled with personal messages and photos from friends and family for your next special occasion. Boomboxgifts.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Mm-hmm.